0: I'm Chris Hutchins, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast.
1: If you're familiar at all with the movie Forrest Gump, you know that the main character, Forrest, accidentally stumbles into some of the most fantastic as well as financially rewarding situations. It is, in fact, laughable. While researching today's guest, I couldn't help but feel a certain Gumpian quality. Brushes with the president, trips around the world, dream jobs, and hobnobbing with Silicon Valley elite. Like Forrest Gump, you may jump to the conclusion that Chris Hudgens has lived a charmed life. But of course, you would be underestimating the intention and thoughtfulness in which he has carefully treaded the past that have been laid out in front of him. His road has been anything but serendipitous. Don't be fooled by the ease in which he seems to have navigated his life and career. Unlike Forrest Gump, Chris has an important superpower. He knows all the hacks. Chris Hudgens became head of new product strategy at Wealthfront when the company co-founded Grove was acquired in 2016. He is a former partner at Google Ventures, co-founder of Milk, acquired by Google, and creator of Laid Off Camp. He is an avid life hacker, a financial optimizer, and host of the top-ranked podcast, All the Hacks, where he shares his quest to upgrade his life without having to spend a fortune. Chris Hudgens, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to start with a quote I saw on a website called Healthy Way from 2017. I quote, Maybe all this life hackery is just another way the internet tries to hold your attention. Some life hacks might really be game changers. But from what we've seen today, life hacks are just another life hoax. Chris, the idea of life hacks sounds, I don't know, almost so early 2000s. Why is this conversation still relevant today?
0: Wow, that's a great kickoff question. Thanks for having me. Throwing the hard ones in. Look, I think something interesting about hacks that, you know, has kind of come up as I've created this show is that they take lots of different forms. And the the hacks that I think are not as interesting are the ones where it's, you know, do this little thing and save 12 cents here. Or, you know, I know some people love to reuse their tinfoil and that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like we've kind of gotten past that, but a lot of the hacks I feel like I'm starting to spend more time learning and understanding are really just like mind shifts. So different ways to think about things, different ways to prioritize your day, different ways to think about health and exercise. And and those are really hacks, you know, could be synonymous in my mind with just doing something differently than you did it before and and it being better. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, something that's, you know, like a trick or, a you know, something secret or it could just be, oh, I'm going to do this thing differently. Like this recent one was uh, every time I'm about to eat something unhealthy, I just tell myself I can have it in 10 minutes, right? And, and by giving myself 10 minutes, I don't deprive myself of this unhealthy thing. So it's so much easier than saying no. But by 10 minutes, I'm like, you know what? I didn't really need it in the first place. Like that's 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 a hack to me, even though it might not have qualified for the you know early 2000 hype hacks, you know, <laughs> but that for me is, is kind of what it means. And honestly, I, I debated whether calling the show all the hacks because the exact point you made, which is that, you know, hacks are kind of some people hate them and it's overrated. But at the end of the day, I tested a few different names and, and people just seemed to want more hacks. So it's like, you know, it's almost like a marketing poll than a uh, Chris is pushing the message. And and so that's where we ended up with it. But I think you could have named the show like learning how to live a more optimal life or, you know, learning from high performing people or, you know, any kind of topic like that. It would have been the same show. All the hacks just seemed like such a, a thing that people were interested in. And, and it turns out I was right.
1: You know, when I was researching this show, I did stumble upon this idea of what is a life hack, and you said mind shifts. I, I kind of like that definition. That kind of broadens it out because the other question I have is how often do these really have to do with money versus other things? Yeah, so that that's a
0: funny thing. I noticed that the cover art I picked was like a a pig smiling <laughs> with a you know a gold coin go, going into the piggy bank. So it's like, yeah, this is a personal finance show. It's in the investing category in the app store. And then we've had episodes that you know are, are nothing about money or investing at all. Uh, in fact, I would say about half of the episodes have nothing to do with financial advice and at all. And, and I only know this because you know I work at Wealthfront. I'm a registered uh, investment advisor rep. So I have a disclosure that I have to play on each episode if it talks about personal finance. And, and it's only about half of them that have it. So I think... The the idea behind the financial part of the show is that everyone knows that there are ways to upgrade your life if you have money, right? You can go and just buy a nicer house. You could send your kids to a nicer school. You can fly in first class. You can pay for the best coach, counselor, therapist to help you improve whatever aspect of your life there is. So there's there's seemingly an unlimited number of ways to upgrade your life if you have money. And so while what i just explained about a way to you know kind of avoid eating something unhealthy might not seem like it has anything to do with money some people out there might say well you know a great way to eat healthier is to hire a nutritionist well that's expensive uh, and i don't want to spend money on a nutritionist so i you know interviewed authors and talked to people who've gone through this and you know talking to some athletes and i think that it might not at face value look like it's a financial conversation but If you can listen to an hour-long conversation with someone who's an expert in a field and that can change your behavior, whether it's your career, your life, your health, in a way that avoids the need to hire a career coach or a nutritionist or a personal trainer, well, then you've both improved your life and saved money. And I think that's a huge win. So it kind of comes back to money because you're helping people find ways to live more optimal lives without spending a fortune.
1: This whole idea of being an optimizer, I think, is deeply ingrained in who you are, from what I understand. Talk about childhood. And, and at that point, maybe money really did play a role in your learning how to optimize.
0: Yeah, this is one where I wish I either had a better memory. My parents could remember some stories that I feel like I'm sure existed. But when I when I think back to childhood, you know, I remember, you know, setting up a lemonade stand on the street and doing things like that. I remember trying to like build a, you know, little quarter pipe for for me and my friend who were skateboarding and instead of paying for one to order online because it was expensive, you know, I was always trying to find the the kind of way to do something different or interesting, make a home movie for a school project. But I I don't really think the kind of heavy optimizing came in until I went to high school. And I went to boarding school. And it seemed like every kid in my boarding school, their parents just gave them a credit card. And I was like, "Wow, this is—I didn't know this was a thing." And I, I remember asking my parents. I said, "Hey, everybody at school has this credit card that just seems to have unlimited money on it. I—I I think you forgot to leave it with me. Did I miss that?" And they were like, "No, yeah, yeah, you're not getting that." And so I was like, "Man, what do I do?" And, and and some of the things were silly, which was like learning how to take the bus. It was outside of DC, so it was like learning how to take the bus to the subway to get into DC while everyone else took a taxi. But some of it was like, "Well, I need to make money," so what if for the 30 minutes that everyone's allowed to go out, everyone's had dinner, right? So no one, no one needs a meal, but everyone kind of wants a snack. What if I order Domino's pizza and then I sell it by the slice? And so everyone else was getting a great deal because their alternative was just buying a pizza. and They didn't want a pizza. So they're getting a better price. I, I don't even think I made money. I think I just used it to eat free pizza. But for me, it was like, if I order pizza, sell six slices, I can eat two slices and I get free pizza. And so little things like that just started kind of being natural for me. It was like find a way to do the thing that I want. It wasn't always about making money as much as just having that experience. So when I learned about frequent flyer miles, I was like, wow, I could go travel to the places I want without having the money to spend on the flights. You know, that that just became a theme, and I think. Learning about uh, Excel one time turned me into a crazy spreadsheet person where I probably have a spreadsheet for, gosh, everything, you know, tracking, what are we going to do when my wife's family and all their kids come for Thanksgiving? Well, let's map it out on a spreadsheet. Let's have a Google form so they can all fill out things they're excited about. Let's stack rank them with some formula that, you know, overweights things that people really don't want to do compared to things that people are so, so on. And and it just kind of became my personality.
1: I was about to say, it sounds very much like the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So for you, it sounds like from an early age, there were things you wanted or you wanted to be like your classmates and it took you to invent some things. Yeah. I mean,
0: if you have your parents' credit card, it's really easy to just do whatever you want. I just didn't have that luxury. And you know, when I went to college, I I had a similar issue. So it's like, okay, well, can I do some side work? Can I do some side projects to make money? What kind of Things could I do, and and that just kept continuing and continuing. You know, I always laughed. You know, I was like driving for Lyft every now and then just for fun, Uh, and I was like, hey, you make a little money, you get to meet some interesting people, and I have so many friends that are like, that just seems like a total waste of time. And I was (laughs) like, I know, but if I'm just going to sit on the couch for an hour, I could have I could make twenty bucks. And I think the hardest thing for me over the last I don't know five or ten years is learning that there are just like bigger picture optimizations. So now, you know, I'm running a podcast and if I'm spending an afternoon trying to figure out how I can save $5 to not have to buy something at Home Depot, that's probably not as good of an optimization as if I can spend that same hour figuring out how to land a really big sponsor, a really big promotion opportunity or something for a business that I'm running. And so the hardest thing of being an optimizer is realizing that, you know, there are things that could make your life more optimal, but they come at the expense of things that are probably higher impact.
1: I found uh, the same thing kind of when I was learning about financial independence is you get so tied to optimization, you don't realize that it's its own type of treadmill, right? We talk about the hedonic treadmill where people get this kind of joy of buying things and it's a little bit of a dopamine hit every time they buy a new thing, but that goes away quickly. I found optimization to be the same way that... I got these dopamine hits from optimizing. And at some point, the optimization was no longer doing me any good, just as you were saying that I could have gotten a lot more value from my time by being a little bit less optimal on some things so that I could spend my time doing other things.
0: Yeah. It, the, the example I have for this is driving you know, home in uh, in a Lyft or an Uber or something in, in San Francisco, or, or sometimes even just on my own, though, though the analogy doesn't work as well. I, I was always the kind of person who was looking like five six seven stoplights ahead trying to say like oh wow if that light's gonna turn we should turn right here and, and then oh oh if, if there's a bunch of cars on that street we should turn left and, you know the GPS is is not taking into account how busy a street is or whether there's you know a bunch of p- kids crossing the school at a certain time and then I'd get home and I'd be like yeah I saved like 42 seconds by by making that you know right turn two blocks <laughs> earlier and then one time I think my wife said yeah but now you're sitting here sending emails. What if you just relaxed in the in in the lift and just sent a couple emails, and then you would have gotten home 42 seconds later? But now been able to not sit down and, and work for 20 minutes sending emails. I was like, I guess that's right. But God, that that turn right dopamine hit was so easy <laughs> that it just made it so like it was hard to get past that. And so I did an interview with a guy named Nir Ayal who wrote a book called Indistractable. It's all about how to kind of get rid of distraction and focus on making progress or or traction, which is really the opposite of distraction on the things you care about. I've really been trying to think about when I'm trying to make these subtle optimizations, whether there's actually a more important thing I could do with my time, which sometimes counter to the financial independence concept, it means pain to make this smaller problem go away. So you have the time to spend something else. And I think if there's one thing that you know, I don't love about a lot of what goes on in the financial independence community. It's that it's all about spending nothing. And it's like, you know, yes, you could make a rake with sticks in your backyard and and some rope and some glue. And you know maybe it's not the best rake, but it works. But if you spent four hours making a rake and you could have spent that four hours doing something else, and, and possibly that something else could have made more money in the long run. Than the, I don't know, $10 cost of the rake at Home Depot. So I'm all for trying to do fun, optimal things that if you get joy out of it, it's even better. But just make sure you're not sacrificing the the long-term big wins for these short fun wins that might not actually be worth it if you took the time to evaluate how you spent your time.
1: Yeah, I love that. And and, you know, I add in the joy aspect too, that sometimes it's okay to not optimize your money, but increase your joy, which sometimes is, you know. You sometimes lose money when you're doing things you like to do, and that's okay, too. I want to go back to this Forrest Gump theme so that we can kind of pull out some of these hacks that I think really are worthwhile and are really worth optimizing for. Let's start, and I'm going to jump around a little bit in your history. Let's start with you meeting President Obama. How did that happen?
0: I don't even know where you found this on the internet, so this is exciting. So I had gone to a dinner and met uh, a woman who had worked on the advance team, which I didn't even know what that meant at the White House. And that means, you know, she was on the team that if if the president was going somewhere, they're going to figure out what happens, right? Oh, we're going take a trip in three months. We're going to go to Bogota, you know, coordinating all the people that are doing Secret Service scouting, that are doing hotel booking. So she was on that team. And I had learned randomly one time, I think over dinner, she was saying, you know, what's really funny is, because we're always trying to travel with all these people, it doesn't make sense to travel with all these drivers. You know, when you look at the motorcade, there's like five or six press vans, all this stuff. It's like, if we had to, you know, fly to San Francisco, and and for example, in San Francisco, the president would land at Moffitt Airfield, and then might go on a bunch of cars to Stanford, talk for an hour, go up to San Francisco, go to a meeting for an hour, and then go up somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, that's like seven different trips. And the, cha- the funny thing is they want to have all the cars ready. So that's each place that for each trip, there's like 10 drivers. That'd be 70 drivers to track around 70 people that know how to drive a car in every city would just be a lot, especially if, if you can send them advanced to the next city. So it turns out that all of these vans in the motorcades are all volunteers, just people that happen to be in the right place at the right time and get the email or their friends know people. So a lot of times it's people who know people on these advanced teams that reach out and say, hey, all my friends in San Francisco, if you have a clean driving record, do you want to do this thing? And we're like, so that happened to us. I got this phone call from we were sitting at dinner. And someone was like, hey, you know, got your number from this friend, mutual friend. She said, you might be interested. Bama's coming to San Francisco and we need people to drive the vans. And I was like, yes. I was like, I don't even know what I have on my schedule (laughs) that day, but yes. And I told my wife and she's like, I don't know. And I was like, no, no. I'm saying yes for you. We're going to do this, and yeah, sure enough, you know, we went in one morning. You know, everyone's all nicely dressed up, which is very rare for San Francisco suits and ties. And I was in charge of a press van, and so I just sat in the van until the motorcade comes out of the the hotel. And it turns out the weather was bad, and so instead of driving to a helicopter, we ended up driving all the way to Stanford. So we drove on the freeway completely closed for about thirty miles, which is. Just a weird experience going on like a five lane highway with one, you know, you're the only cars on there. And then before that whole thing started, you know, the president came in and met everyone and said, thank you for doing this, shook hands, took some photos, and so I wouldn't say I got like the, the full meet the president experience. We didn't sit down and, you know, play basketball drink, or have drink a drink of beer. Numbers. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't get to drink a beer. So I'll have to put, put beers with the president on the, the next order of the bucket list. But that was one. I feel like all these crazy experiences that I've been fortunate to go on were just like someone sent an email and said, is this an interesting thing? And I was like, yes, yes. Put me on the list. I'd love to do the interesting thing. I'd love to have the qu- crazy experience. Just add me to the list. And then when I, I get the email or the call, I'm like, yes, I would like to do that. And sometimes they're terrible, right? Like it's, a, you know, you're going to do this thing and it gets canceled or it doesn't turn into anything. And sometimes they're, you know, driving the motorcade and meeting the president.
1: So I'm going to put words in your mouth here. My next question was going to be, what is the life hack to having fantastic and outsized experiences such as this one? And I'm assuming your answer is saying yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just always being open, always saying yes, trying to add value to people's lives around you so that, you know, they're they're thinking, oh, wow, uh, how could I, who, who should I invite to say, oh, that person just was so great last week. I, how could I do that? And, and not looking for anything in return, right? I didn't expect the person I'd met, by the way, that introduced us to make all this happen. She not even work at the White House anymore. So like I wasn't offering uh, favors uh, or trying to help connect her with other companies that she could work at because I I wanted something in return. I just thought she seemed really cool. She seemed really interesting. She was nice. She had a great story. She's trying to meet companies out in Silicon Valley for the next stage of her career. How can I be helpful? And, and you know the reward sometimes is nothing other than the satisfaction of helping others. And sometimes random things happen and. So I try to put as much good out in the world and hope for the best in return. And and whenever it comes up, try to say yes and jump on it because you never know where it'll go.
1: So I want to jump to a different part of your life. You have been a fantastically successful business person. I mean, you've got a lot of wins in your column, but if we go back and look at your beginnings after college, you were an investment banker for what, eight or nine months. And I believe the next job you took after that you moved to San Francisco and got laid off, like within a year. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yeah, I remember trying to convince someone, like three years after graduation, that they should hire me. And they're like, "Well, you jumped around a lot." I was like, "No, no, you don't understand. All these like random things happened that led me to where I am. That were all great, but yes, technically, in the last three years, I've had four jobs. And so, yeah, it was not. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. I, I don't. I don't even think I knew. You know, Thanksgiving of my senior year, I didn't even know you were supposed to think about what to do after graduation. I don't, this sounds so crazy to me now, but at the time I wasn't like, ooh, let's prepare for a job. I think I kind of thought you graduate, you're no longer in school, and now you go find out what you want to do. But no, you're supposed to do that in advance so that when you graduate, you have a job. So it all kind of caught me by surprise. And I just asked friends, I was like, what are the best jobs? Because I hadn't had the time, I didn't have the time to figure out what I wanted to do. And people were like, investment banking, management consulting, They're the really great prestigious jobs. And I was like, I, instead of taking the time to figure out what I want, because I'm already so far behind, I might as well just try to get a job in these two careers that everyone said are great without even understanding really what they were. And that's what happened. It turns out that you know, I'm thankful I got laid off because I probably wouldn't have lasted much longer in the, those careers, but it was a good place to start off and, and meet some interesting people and, and learn about some industries, but certainly not what I wanted to
1: do forever. At that point in your life, you actually started something called laid off camp. Tell me about what failure did for you at that time, because that's certainly a life hack is what do you do when things aren't going your way? So you're a few years out of college, your first job, you clearly didn't like your second job, you weren't liking and then get laid off. A lot of people are kind of at the give up point. How did you turn that around and start the laid off camp? Yeah. So I I was living in San
0: Francisco. I got laid off about a month after moving here. So fortunately in that month, my then girlfriend, now wife had gotten a job. So we weren't completely out of any income, but San Francisco is expensive and and living on one income, uh, you know, is not easy, especially when you're right out of college. And so it's Thanksgiving. It was right before Thanksgiving. And I was like, no, one's going to get a job for the next two months, right? Like I, I, it's, the wake of the 2008 crisis, and it's the holidays. I just didn't expect anyone to be hiring, nor did I even know what I wanted to do. So I thought, gosh, and I don't know anyone. So like, what, what do I do here? And I've been fortunate to be exposed to this event called Bar Camp, which I don't know if it's even, I assume it's still going on, But the idea of an unconference, and this one was a little bit more about technology, which I was excited about. But this idea of getting a bunch of people in a room and and no agenda in advance, but you create the agenda and the topics that you're going to talk about are all things that people are excited about in the moment and people just go wherever you want. And it's kind of like build the conference on the fly. And I was like, well, that's so fascinating. Well, there's probably a lot of people right now who have no idea what they're doing, have free time, don't have a job. And I don't know any of people in San Francisco. So what if we got all together and everyone could share different things? And so I thought, well, you know, I spent a lot of time on the internet. I, I could help someone build their LinkedIn profile, but I don't know anyone in San Francisco. I don't know companies here. You know, there were people that probably knew a lot about interviewing because they, you know, hired thousands of people and they could help younger people. I knew that there were a lot of entrepreneurs and maybe you could bring together people who freelance and, and have started companies to help people who didn't have a job figure out maybe there's an alternative path towards you know non-traditional employment. And so I was like, well, let's see what happens. And I remember creating this thing called Laid Off Camp. I told a bunch of people about it and wasn't sure where it would go. And, and then the next thing you know, I got this phone call from someone, a reporter at TechCrunch. And I was like, so excited because TechCrunch at the time was like, you know, the New York Times for Silicon Valley. And I took this call and they were like, we want to interview you about this thing you're doing. And I was like, this is awesome. And I called a friend of mine and he was like, who who was the reporter? Because he he was big in startup land. And I told him her name and he was like, I know almost everyone at TechCrunch. That person doesn't work there. And I was like, immediately shot. I thought, oh, this is someone was messing with me. It turns out that that reporter, this was her first assignment at TechCrunch. And it was a real article, and and that really sparked a lot of awareness. I met a bunch of companies that wanted to sponsor the event because startups were actually still hiring because they were growing. They'd raise venture capital and they were kind of a little bit immune to the traditional cycles of the economy. And then then things just grew from there. And the whole thing was open source, so I had a wiki. If I wrote a letter to a sponsor, I put it on the wiki. If I designed a logo, I put it on the wiki, and then said, if you live in another city and want to do this event, copy everything I've done and do it. And so we ended up, there were 20, 22 events across the U.S. and almost every major city. I, I didn't even go. I went to two of them outside of San Francisco. So one city, I can't remember, maybe Phoenix, kept it going for three or four years. Someone sent me a picture once of a billboard with the Laid Off Camp logo on it. And I was like, I can't believe this is still happening. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it was like a wonderful opportunity to meet people, get exposure, kind of build a somewhat of a personal brand. From a revenue standpoint, I think I may I think I lost money doing the whole thing, but that wasn't the intention. So, yeah. So so I didn't really have a choice, right? I had free time. I didn't think I was going to be able to get a job, so maybe to your point, I felt so it felt so impossible to do the thing I needed to do that I was like, "Well, I can't just sit at home and
1: do nothing." And so yeah. That was what happened. <laughs> and, and it seems like you saw an opportunity, right? So you saw the unique circumstances that you were under created an opportunity that might help other people. Yeah. 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 People were doing these
0: pink slip parties. It kind of fell in the zeitgeist of 08 and the internet and all that. And yeah, it was a, uh, it was a lot of fun. Didn't know what, I mean, obviously didn't go anywhere, right? It's, it's, not a thing anymore. And and maybe there'll be another financial crisis, hopefully not, but maybe there'll be another, you know, a bunch of layoffs and maybe someone else can revive it. Yeah. I think it was a great way for me to just throw myself into a new city and and figure things out.
1: And that laid off camp led to some consulting opportunities. And as you were closing those contracts up, you decided to take a two to three week vacation, That somehow turned into a trip around the world for seven months. What happened there?
0: So I don't think most people think about traveling around the world as something they could ever do for an extended period of time. I know I didn't. So my wife and I were talking. uh, I think we were still dating at the time because after we got back from spending seven months 24-7, we were like, well, that worked. Let's get married. But At the time, we were like, let's take a trip because I had all these consulting projects. They're wrapping up. I decided I wanted a job. Like I wanted to work at a startup full-time. But before I do that, maybe we could take a trip. And my wife didn't love her job, but it had never even crossed our mind that you could travel the world for more than a couple of weeks, more than a vacation. And so as we were doing research, we stumbled across a bunch of people who had done this. They'd literally quit their jobs and they traveled for 7, 12, 24 months. We were like... Oh, this is a thing we didn't even know this this is a thing people do. And if you look at the cost of travel, one of the biggest, most significant pieces is the airfare to get there. So, if you want to go on a trip to Europe or Africa, the cost to fly there is, is really significant. And if you're trying to fly around in, inside Europe, you know, each ticket's 100, 200, 300 bucks. If you take the bus, you take the train, those tickets can be 15, 20, 30 dollars and lodging. If you go on a trip and stay at a nice hotel, it could be really expensive. But if you're couch surfing or staying in hostels, you know, you can spend, I think in India, we spent the cheapest hotel we ever stayed at was a hostel in India for a dollar a night. So if you figure you could easily eat in India for a dollar a day, you could easily eat, stay in India, let's call it for $5 a day. So every day is, you know, let's call it all in $10. And, but the flight to India, it's hard to find a flight to India from the US for less than $1,000. So you know a ten day trip might cost you a eleven hundred or yeah ten ten eleven hundred dollars, and a twenty day trip is twelve hundred dollars right so the longer you take a trip, the better you know the price per day is, and so we were like, "Wow, there's so many places we want to see. We're in a point in our life where we've saved enough money, and you know, we probably had ten thousand dollars saved um and we thought. We're never going to get this opportunity. If we wanted to take twenty trips, it would cost us, you know, thousands of dollars each time. What if we just do this? And, and we focus on the countries where we thought two things were true. One, way more affordable. So we focused on Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. And then we also said countries that we thought weren't going to weren't going to be the same thirty years from now. Like, I find it hard to believe that London will go through as much transformation as Thailand or something like that. So we were like these lesser expensive countries where things might change and they might be different. Let's go there and let's do it overland. The goal was to not, once we got to South Africa, the goal was to not fly again until we got to somewhere in Asia. We ended up having to take a few short flights because there are some countries like Sudan and uh, Afghanistan that were just not possible to you know get a visa and cross through but you know overland travel we took a tra- fifty two hour train ride through africa that cost less than twenty dollars uh, and the the flight probably would have been 600 so it was a wild adventure we got to meet thousands of different people from all over the world i, I wouldn't have traded that for anything you know I think now that we have a, a child and and maybe a higher standard of travel it would have cost Ten times as much, but man, at that time in our life, we were able to do something that you know just took some crazy conviction that it was a good idea and you know it all worked out.
1: And we're not going to make this into a travel hacking episode, but you also use credit card rewards as well as rented out your apartment in San Francisco for a little bit of a profit to pay for some of your cost of living.
0: Yeah, I mean, turns out furnished apartments rent for more. Than unfurnished apartments and short-term rentals rent more th- for more than long-term rentals. So if you have a furnished apartment that you can rent short term, you can usually rent it for more than the rent you're paying if that's allowed in your lease. And this was before the days of Airbnb, and there probably were lots of rules that landlords put in place. So I think we kind of fortunate there. That was one. And then the the biggest thing about travel hacking that comes to this kind of travel is that one-way international flights can be really expensive. And so it makes a trip like this t- tough. But when it comes to points and miles, one way trips uh, are just usually half of what the round trip is. And so sometimes, and, and a lot of times things are based on distance. And so, inter Africa flights, for example, can be some of the most expensive flights in the world for how far the travel is. But when it comes to using miles, it's like, oh, well, this flight is just between two countries in the same continent. So it's the equivalent of like $100 of points versus $1,000 of, of dollars. And so, yeah, we definitely use some travel hacking there. Uh, It's a passion of mine. Check out the podcast if you want more. We don't have to go deep here.
1: We are talking to Chris Hutchins, who became the head of new product strategy at Wealthfront when his company he co-founded, Grove, was acquired in 2016. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. usa.com. That's landroverusa.com. Hey everybody, I just wanted to remind you that if you want to connect with me, Jordan Grummet, also known as Doc G, there are a few different ways to do it. First and foremost, there's jordan@grummet.com That's jordangrume com. Right now, that's being diverted to my old medical blog, but eventually it will be a hub for all things Doc G, Earn and Invest, and my new book, Taking Stock. So check me out, jordangrummet.com. Also, there is our Earn and Invest Facebook group. Just go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Here we discuss topics similar to what you hear on the podcast, but it is 24-7, We discuss economics, personal finance, the financial independence movement, you name it, we discuss it there. And last but not least, you can go to earnandinvest.com to get the latest episodes, videos, and blog posts. Check us out. We hope to see you at any of these places, as well as the podcast you're listening to today. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Chris Hudgens. He is an avid life hacker, financial optimizer, and host of the top-ranked podcast, All the Hacks, where he shares his quest to upgrade his life without having to spend a fortune. Before the break, Chris, we are talking about your trip around the world. Seven months later, you get back, you give a talk at South by Southwest, and then you decide it's time to work for a bona fide startup. Of course, you did what we all do, and you cast a wide net, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I did quite the opposite. I said I have. I mean, I looked at myself. I was like, look, I've never worked at a startup. I most startups want to hire people who do something. There was nothing I'd done that even seemed like it would fit the role. So I thought, well, the most I could value I could offer is that I'm willing to really do anything. Like I'm. You put want me to go try to sell things? Great. You want me to try to hire people? Great. I'll just do whatever it takes. And that attitude is helpful if you can get in front of someone that understands it and completely unhelpful if you sit put it on a resume and send it to a thousand people. So I thought the only reason someone might hire me is because I'm, you know, all in and excited about what they're doing and willing to do anything. And that's got to come across in a more one-on-one kind of way than you know, blasting out emails. So I thought, what's something that I'm excited about? What's a part of the industry I'm excited about? And you know, I had just gone on this trip around the world, and right before I'd left, the iPhone 3GS had come out, and it was the first phone with internet and GPS, or at least the first mainstream phone. And I'd seen when I was traveling what that meant, and that meant I could search for things I could track where I was coordinates when I was we were traveling we were in places where I could you know save a map and see where we were without having internet I could look up I think foursquare was around at the time I could look up what restaurants had someone rated in the city on foursquare that are near me and so I came back thinking gosh location is really cool and you know it was really early days and so I found this company called simple geo and they'd raised I don't know 5 or 10 million dollars and the whole idea was they were going to build a platform for any company to use location data in the products they're building. And I was like, wow, location data is so valuable. Nothing could be a bigger opportunity than this. There was a company called Twilio at the time that had just done this for voice. They made it so easy for anyone to do text message authentication, texting to communicate with the service. I was like, this is a huge opportunity. So I was like, I have to get in front of this company. So I remember emailing them. I remember trying to find one of the co-founders at South by Southwest and saying hi. Ultimately, I, I met someone that was one of their investors. And I was like, I really think this company is going to be huge. I want to get in front of them. Could you introduce us? And I managed to get 15 minutes of time. And I gave them a presentation on like, the opportunity I thought for the industry and looking back, it was a horrible presentation. Like, it was absolute. <laughs> it was like, I pulled these like Gartner research reports that, you know, in business are just like, in, by 2050, location is going to be huge. And I was showing them charts and slides. And all I could think of, you know, looking back was like, wow, well, they didn't care about this at all. And fortunately, it didn't matter because having run a company, I know that if someone's going to go to the hassle of tracking you down, and building you a presentation about how cool your company is. And they're not an idiot. Like if, if they just have like enough smarts to do any task well, you should hire that person. Because at any small company, there are a handful of things that just you don't need a full time person for yet. And you can throw them on those projects. And so I was fortunate that this company said, Well, we have we want to figure out what we can do to partner with companies, right? We have this really cool technology go meet with companies and figure out what products we could offer that they would be willing to pay for and and we'll see where it goes and so they hired me to do that you know the company didn't end up having you know the the big outcome i had hoped for but i i got to get my feet wet at a startup and i you know worked as hard as i could to add value to the company and and that kind of set my career in kind of startups and venture capital and everything you know i, I attribute a lot of it to the you know opportunity i was given to go work at my first startup
1: and that also gave you the opportunity to meet a bunch of people like Kevin Rose, who at that time had started and founded Dig, which I know played a role in your later ventures. Before we get to those, how relevant do you think that hack is today, kind of when you're out there job searching to go deep with one company you love? Do you think it's still relevant in 2021? I mean,
0: I have hired multiple people at my startup, which granted, you know, we, we wound the startup down. Three years ago, so you know it's it's not 2021, but it's 2018, and I would say 100%. Now, if you really want a job at, you know, General Motors, I don't know if it's going to work, right? I don't know if General Motors is is interested in as much of hiring people who are passionate about GM as they are people who can do the thing they need you to do. But if you're looking to work at a small business, if you're looking to work at a startup, if you're looking to work at a a company that's kind of more creative. I would be shocked if the level of passion you have isn't a huge factor. And I know that at Wealthfront, you know, we're almost 250 people right now. I know that caring about the company and not just saying you care about it but demonstrating that you actually want to work here is one of the most important factors outside of being able to do the job, of course. But like one of the most important factors we look for. And you know, to the contrary, I've interviewed people and thought, "Wow, this person is a fantastic product manager or designer. And then I'm like, you know, why do you want to work at Wealthfront? And the answer is like, well, I love finance. And I'm like, okay, well, there's like a thousand companies in finance. (laughs) Like we are one of them. And none of your answer had anything to do with what we do. So if you're just out there to work at a company that, you know, does financial stuff on the internet, you probably shouldn't work here because startups are hard. Companies of every size, shape, and you know, fashion go through hard times. And if you aren't really excited about the company you work at, chances are when things are hard, you're probably going to look somewhere else. And that just means that we have to recruit people more often. And so I think one thing, a lesson we've learned is if you hire people that are really passionate about what you are building and, and the mission of the company and the vision of the company, they last, they last longer at the company, they stay there, they contribute more, they're more effective and productive you as a company can choose to reward people like that better. And, and Wealthfront, I think, has one of the best kind of ownership programs in terms of increasing the amount of ownership every employee has as they continue their career and work harder and, and have bigger impact. And all that together just creates for a better company. And so I think that the hack uh, of kind of putting yourself out there in that way is, is probably never going to not be relevant. But the, the big caveats are you have to be able to do the job you're trying to do so no amount of hustle and ambition can you know replace the need to have the requirements for the job. I think it's really powerful. And, and what company doesn't want to hire someone that's passionate about doing the thing they're doing? You underestimate how important that is. But as a founder, it is hard to find people that really want to do what you're doing so passionately. And I've made a couple of hires like that myself. And you know I don't regret it at all.
1: This makes me think about how complicated it is to become a founder of a startup. Let's meander through your work history just a touch. You went from that original startup to working with Kevin Rose on a new startup. Eventually that was acquired by Google. You worked for Google Ventures. You eventually set off on your own for Grove, into Grove, which was acquired by Wealthfront. Tell us about some of the hacks Out there for people who want to be founders or are passionate about startups?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that every time I've started a company, it's been, I've been more aware by the experiences I've had. So you could start a company at any time, but man, if you have a chance to go work at a startup before you do, I would jump on that as an opportunity to learn. You know, If you had an opportunity to work as an investor in startups at a venture capital firm, that's another one. Like The more data you can get about how this whole industry works, the better and more effective you'll be at starting that company. I think the biggest and most important thing that we learned from the first startup, Milk, was that... I mean, this sounds so cliche. Startups are hard. Of course, everyone knows that. But we started this company as an incubator. And the idea was we were going to try different product ideas out and see what you know we found heat for and double down on that. And I think one of the hardest things about a company is getting through the hard times, both as the founder even more, but also as an employee. And the thing that oftentimes I see really rallies everyone together is the vision and the mission of why that company is there. And the nature of starting an incubator is that we actually didn't have that mission or that vision. And so we started with one product. We decided we didn't love that product. We were trying to figure out what to build next. And we couldn't get a small team of seven people on the same page about one product because there wasn't a reason we were all there other than we wanted to build stuff. And like wanting to build stuff just isn't enough in, 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 the 2000s, which when we started that or 2021 today to start a company, like you need to have a reason to exist. And and that rallies people together. And so I think that's one thing that's really important is know why you're doing it and find other people who want to do it for the same reason. Because once we hit that impasse, the the reason we sold the company and and for anyone who didn't see there were some air quotes during the question about acquired, because, (laughs) you know, in in both circumstances, you know, it's great to be able to, to say, oh, my company was acquired, but to be totally candid, there were no like, in the most recent, it was like, I wanted to find a home for the team. I didn't, you know, nobody deposited money into my bank account until I got my first regular paycheck for this most recent, you know, kind of acquisition, if you will. It's kind of much more known as an aqua hire where the team, you've built a strong team that, that has a mission or, or wants to build stuff and then go work on someone else's product. So, you know, it, it was a great outcome and that everyone got, you know, most people in, in different circumstances got jobs after it and there was a place to keep working. And, and in Wealthfront's case, we were able to continue working on that same mission, but yeah, I think that that was my biggest hack is, is making sure that you have a reason you're doing this. Because when it gets hard, if you just think, oh, I have an idea of something that could make money, it's almost never going to win. Whether it's starting a podcast, whether it's starting a, a business, it's like, do the thing that you would do if you weren't getting paid. And you probably will someday get paid, but do a thing just to make money and you'll probably get out-operated, out-engineered by someone who both thinks it's a great way to make money and is passionate about it. So if you have a great business idea, ask yourself whether you'd work on it for free. And if you wouldn't, I'd really question whether, whether it's the right thing to jump into.
1: Talk about the dichotomy between great people versus a great idea. I mean, I don't. I
0: don't even know if there are great ideas, right? There's so. They're, there's just so many ideas. Some are better than others, but I don't want to give enough emphasis to the idea because the idea almost is never what ends up happening. Uh, if you, my wife was very fortunate and joined a company called Zimride, and I remember us talking about the idea there, and it was it was a it was a good idea, but it wasn't a great idea, and that company turned into Lyft. And the entire business she joined, they sold to Enterprise Rent a Car a few years later. So, like, she joined a company, and everything she joined for was sold off because this other idea of Lyft came out of that. And, like, that's just an example. Uh, and it happens all across the world. Someone starts a company, this is the idea. Wealthfront had originally started as a totally different business, it evolved. So the ideas are really not as valuable as it seems. And when someone comes to you, I I was fortunate to work at Google Ventures and invest in dozens of startups. And people would come and say, I have the best idea in the world. And I was like, okay. But like, Mm I care that you have the best team, that you have an industry you're passionate about, that you can demonstrate that you can build products quickly. Those things are far more important obviously, it's great that you have a good idea. And and innovation is very hard. So I do think ideas, good ideas are hard to come by. But the execution of those ideas, the passion behind those ideas are even harder to come by. So I would bet on a team that is passionate about a space, can demonstrate they can build things in that space far more often than I would invest in a team that was so-so and had a good idea. In fact, I would never invest in a so-so team with a good idea.
1: Let's talk about the execution of a specific idea. You recently started a podcast, All the Hacks, and one of your episodes was with Tim Ferriss, a three-hour interview. This will not be a three-hour interview. A three-hour interview about some of the hacks involved with podcasting. Tell me why you started a podcast and condense that three hours for us. Tell us what you gleaned from that conversation, if you can give us a few sentences that really hit home.
0: Yeah. So. The reason I started a podcast was kind of interesting. It was one of those things that, you know, we never prioritize what we want personally as much as professionally because there's not a lot of accountability. And uh, I'll be interviewing uh, this, this guest. By the time you listen to this, it'll probably have aired named Ben Nempton, who, who kind of dedicated his entire career towards helping people achieve their dreams and in and, and the personal world and professional. But I'd always said, oh, I should start a podcast. Oh, I should start a podcast. And it always started because I'd go to a dinner And inevitably, somehow, a life hack or a financial hack or a credit card trick came up. And then all of a sudden, people were like, can you tell me more? I'm really excited. And as I'm constantly learning new, crazier things in that world, people were more more and more interested. And I thought, wow, I should just share this. And people were telling me, you should just share this. I want to send this to my friend, but they weren't at the dinner. So I kept saying I was going to do it. And it wasn't until I was on one podcast from, in fact, Kevin Rose, who I'd started a company with. And he said, hey, tell everybody about your podcast. And I said... Well, I haven't told anyone. I don't have a podcast yet. He's like, I know, but you keep saying you're going to do it. So you have until this episode airs to send me an audio file of you answering that question far better than you did now. And I have a lot of followers and they're going to hear about your podcast. So I'm basically going to kind of, as a friend, push you to do this thing you keep saying you're going to do. So I went home and I thought, okay, I need a name, I need a website, I need a trailer, I need all this stuff. And, and I knew I, I didn't have much time. So I just sat down with a mic and I recorded and answered the question. And I knew what it would be about because it was what I loved doing. You know, By the time that episode aired, within maybe hours, Apple had approved the trailer, the website had gone up, and it was out there. And it still took me a month or two to, to release a guest because you know it's so new. I didn't have any... This wasn't something that I'd been planning for months. But I kind of got thrown into it, and so the whole Tim Ferriss episode really came from the fact that some people research the business, the idea, the area they're going to get into for years before starting. I had maybe talked about it for years, but I hadn't actually figured out what there is to do and how to learn and how to grow. And, but I knew that if I was going to spend time on something, I, di- I didn't want it to just be a small thing. I wanted to try to make it as big as possible. And you know I'd been fortunate to have been introduced to Tim you know years ago, and I reached out and said, "Hey, you have arguably one of the most successful you know, interview format podcasts of all time. Uh, I would love to pick your brain. And I sent him like 30 questions. And he was like, this is a lot of questions. <laughs> he was like, do you, are there ones that you want me to focus on? I was like, no, all of them. And he said, well, I get emails all the time of how do I you know, start a podcast? How do I do better? can we just record an episode where you just run through every aspect of podcasting and I'll record it. We'll go as long as we need to. And then if anyone ever emails me and says, Hey, I have some podcasting questions, I'll say, Hey, go listen to this episode. So that's what we did. And I didn't know it would go three hours, but, you know, talk to someone who's produced hundreds and hundreds of episodes of the top ranked podcast at many different times in its life cycle. And and there's just a lot of stuff to learn. And so I'd say similar to starting a company, the biggest thing I took away was that Tim's advice is is don't start something and think about the money at the beginning. And don't start something and think about the audience. So he said, you know, if you want to interview someone, interview them if you're interested. And and funny enough, and and I appreciate Tim's blunt honesty, I also asked him before I knew that this would become an episode interviewing him, I said, hey, you have a big podcast. Obviously, I have a podcast. I'd love to be a guest on your podcast. And Tim goes, I got to be honest with you. Like, I'm not that interested in learning more life hacks. And so he said, I like you, you're a nice guy, but I'm not interested in what you have to say. I know my audience is probably really interested in it, but I'm not, so I'm going to pass. Because if he were to interview me, he would just be asking questions, hoping to get answers that people are interested in, but he's not really engaged. And, And you could just, you'd be able to tell that in the conversation. And so he said, Only do things that you're personally interested in. Don't care. Do something that you think 10% of your audience will love more than 100% will like, because that's what really matters is is doing things that some people will love. And and as long as one of those people is you. So my biggest takeaway was don't worry about monetization of a podcast. Don't worry. Just focus on do you love what you're doing and, and everything else will kind of either work or it won't but it'll at least work in a way that's sustainable because I, people listening to this might think, Oh, you just throw up a mic and two people talk and there's no work. But I can tell based on the questions you're asking that, you know, you put a lot of work into preparing for this and I do the same for my podcast and it's a lot of work. And that work will be very hard. If you're just interviewing guests that you're totally not interested in, if if you're not focused on something that you're passionate about, and then it'll feel like a job and, and nothing, sparks creativity and innovation more than just feeling like you're doing something boring. Yeah, it definitely sparks it totally, you know, blows it out.
1: <laughs> I definitely, you know, feel this idea of the episodes I end up being most proud of tend to be the most authentic. They're like the guests that I'm like most gigged about talking to or a topic that really gets me. We've been talking about life hacks and it hits me that you know chris hutchins you've probably achieved a lot of the things certainly from a business standpoint that you want to achieve how do you f- define enough and and i would say that in another way how do you know when it's time to just stop the life hacks and just live
0: i think there's always another thing to optimize right it just is is how higher order is it in the in the you know, view of life and Ramit Sethi. Actually, I spent a little time with him and he really helped me think through this in, in our interview. He said, Look, you know, you're, you're focused on these small questions, you could be bigger questions and bigger and bigger. And so at some point, you know, maybe you've been so successful. I'm thinking about uh, Bill Gates right now. It's like, how do I optimize the way you distribute malaria vaccines to the world? Right, like I would love to be focused on optimizations that help billions of people, and and you know there maybe that's the the seventh step. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but I, I don't think there's ever going to be a time where it's not worth thinking about whether there's a more optimal way to do something. And I think that's the the kind of true spirit, really, of Silicon Valley is you know don't get too stuck in the ways. There's probably always a better way to do something, a better way to deliver a product, to deliver a service, and you know, that'll continue happening forever. And so it's just how, how, Macro or micro, are you focused? And so I'm trying really hard. You know, when it's in your nature to optimize everything, everything comes up. It's like, how do I optimize this little tiny thing? How do I do this? But I'm trying really hard to really focus on the next order for me, which is, you know, building a business on my own that is sustainable, that I'm excited and passionate about. I realize that there are things that I love doing more than others. And, you know, managing a team of people is something I enjoy. But it's really hard to manage a company and a team of people. And I think I enjoy the the business side more than the people side at scale. And so, you know, that's a different role and starting to learn about myself and, and how I like to work and how that, you know, takes place in a business. I got a lot to optimize still. So I don't think there ever is a time to stop optimizing. And if you frame it as when's it, when's enough life hacks enough, you know, they, maybe you could feel one way, but if you say, when's it, when's it, Enough to stop caring about improving the way you live, the way you work. Well, that doesn't seem like you should ever stop. And so for me, life hacks and, and improving life are, are kind of synonymous. And so I don't really know if I ever want to stop improving life. This guy, Ben Nimpton, who I who I at this point will have interviewed, you know, always has the number one of the number the number one thing people say when they die, on their deathbed at least, about how they feel is they they wish that they have lived a life they wanted to, not the life they thought they were supposed to, or they were told to live. And so, you know, the only way to do that is to continue to optimally live your life towards what you want. And so, I don't know, it seems like if if 70 plus percent of people have that regret, there's there's a lot of room for a lot of us to continue to optimize our entire lives.
1: Yeah, the reference is Bronnie wears five regrets of the dying. And that is, I believe, the first regret of the five. As we talk about optimization and certainly for you it sounds like there's been an evolution do you ever feel like you are going to evolve to optimizing totally and completely outside of the business realm i guess some people would call that retirement do you see yourself getting to that point at some at some time yeah i mean
0: i'm a a fan of the the fi but not the re for me retirement is I guess depending on how you define it, I've defined it in the past as this: as one hand, the cessation of work. Which no, I don't. I don't think I'm ever going to be the person that just sits at home and does nothing. I think I just get so bored. I I'd like there are days and and even weeks where I'm like, you know, it'd be really nice to do nothing this week. But that wanes, and you're ready to go. So if you define it as the ability to do, you know, work on your own terms, to not have to take a job that you don't love because you need the money. Well then, in that regard, yeah, sure. I'll, I'm I'll probably, you know, either retired now or or go through phases of retirement in my life already. But if it's stopping working and doing nothing, that, I don't think so. Do I? Do I want to find a time? We have a 15 month old now. Do I want to find a time where uh, I have more time to spend with our daughter and and as a family and maybe take trips together? Yes. Do I want to optimize the way work happens so those things are possible so we could live for a you know month in Japan? Well, you know, for all the bad things that the pandemic has brought, I do think the ability to work remotely is, is one of the the silver linings. And so, fortunately, I think that's actually not something that you even have to stop working for. You know, three years ago, if I said I want to live in Japan for two months, it would literally mean I have to like quit my job or take a sabbatical. Now, it's kind of very possible with many jobs. So you know, I don't think I'll ever stop working per se, but, you know, I might find different ways to do it, you know, doing it on my own terms.
1: Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your life hacks. When I think upon our evolution as people, as we grow, we first start by doing everything by ourselves because that's how you learn. I remember with my podcast. The first thing I did is I taught myself how to edit. I taught myself how to record. I had to go through a process of teaching myself how to interview. But as time goes by, you realize that as you're getting better and smarter, there are other people who've already done some of that work for you. So they've already set out the steps you can take to do things better and faster. And so we can go out and learn these life hacks, just like I can go out and learn better ways to podcast by listening to an interview of you and Tim Ferriss, a guy who's put out hundreds of podcast episodes, we can always get better. We can always learn. We can always improve. And part of that is by figuring what the shortcuts are. What can we do that optimizes our life that makes things better? I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you if we want to learn more. What is going on and what is the best way to reach you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just continuing to you know, build my podcasting skills as well. So we have a lot of interviews coming down the pipe. That's kind of where I spend all my free time. I spend my daytime uh, at Wealthfront, helping people build their wealth through investing. And you can find me online. Allthehacks.com is the show. ChrisHutchins.com has a link to almost everything else I'm doing. And
1: yeah, that's where I'm at. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Chris Hutchins. That's a wrap. Sweet. Cool. That was, that was fun. a lot of fun. I hope yeah. you don't mind me rehashing some of your history, but as I oh, went no. and researched, I know that you've talked about these things in the past, but I think it's been a little bit of time. Um, and the other thing is, I just think that it speaks so much to why you are where you are today, especially with the podcast. Um, kind of going through some of the things you learned, those hacks, I think are helpful to people to listen to. But I also think it shows kind of how you evolved and how someone evolves kind of, who starts out like you, who kind of said, I want to be in business. I want to be in startup. I want to kind of be an entrepreneur and and how you grow and learn.
0: Yeah. And I had no idea what that even meant at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, but you kind of had this inkling, okay, there's something I want to do, but then you had to go and actually learn it. And there are now things that you have to teach, which can make it easier on other people, right? They can focus in and hone in on the important stuff a little bit faster, um, which is really cool
0: yeah thank you and I, I i appreciate your interview style it now makes me feel ill prepared for my interview this <laughs> afternoon uh i feel like i've rec- i know i know everything there is to know about the guest but they're not a typical guest they're like a basketball player so i'm like
1: oh but that's really exciting and cool
0: yeah are you a basketball fan
1: um not more than just kind of having knowing vague things about it but okay. um But to me, that's like the fun of a podcast is you get people on who are totally like outside of your realm or, or, you know, known for one thing. And then hopefully you get to talk to them about something that people haven't heard them talk about before, which is really cool. That's
0: so I got connected. I don't know if you've ever heard of a player by the name of Manu Ginobili. Uh, The name
1: uh, is familiar. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's an Argentinian basketball player, but he happens to also be like the reason we got connected is because he's a listener because he's a huge travel points guy.
1: Yeah, which is so that's cool. Yeah, which
0: is funny because he's made like one hundred and thirty million (laughs) dollars in the NBA. He played for twenty three years. And and Uh, so
1: that's that. But that is a fascinating question. Right. Why you, this guy who's made this much money clearly can afford to pay first class. Why is this so intriguing to you? And It gets down to why we do what we do. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there, as I've learned about this guy's story, there's so much interesting stuff in there that I am excited to dig into. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. It'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I find, I don't know how much time you spend preparing, but I find that it takes a lot of time to prepare for interviews.
1: (laughs) It's in between part of it is for instance. So like, I went back and looked at some of your past podcast episodes, et cetera, et cetera. But then I'm like, oh, wait, I remember this story, right? So I kind of knew who you were through social media, et cetera. I had heard other podcasts with you. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I listened to that in 2017. I listened to that in 2018. So I kind of, so that helped. But then I usually spend a few hours in the morning of like, oh, you know, it starts with probably, I guess, like you podcasting is always kind of on my mind. So there's a lot of thinking on the fly that goes on in the background, but then I'll sit a good hour or two and really look at things and put them together. That Actually looking at the person is a good hour, or a little more. I spend more time also thinking about how, how do I want to structure the conversation? How do I want to introduce the conversation? Knowing that it could, obviously all go completely off the rails once you start talking to someone. But I found that if I prepare right, I can usually guess what you're going to say before you say it. So okay. a lot of times, like I put the arc of questions together in such a way that often I have to like scratch things out in the middle. Cause you just answered my next question from the last question. So not always granted.
0: Um, yeah, but sometimes. And it,
1: and it depends on how well I know the person. Um, but you know, that, that's my goal. And my goal is, is for the people to have it really enjoy being interviewed. Like yeah, I know yeah. I've done a good job. Like if you come out of this going, wow, that was a fun interview. I'm like, okay, that was that was good.
0: Yeah, sometimes I did an interview yesterday, and it was like, there's there's this new interview that I've now done a lot, which is just I rattle off a bunch of like just random hacks. They're like, dude, what, what hacks do you have here? What hacks do you have here? And look. That interview, in my mind, is more like I'm doing marketing work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is fine. Like I enjoy doing marketing work because I want to grow the show, but I-, I don't leave thinking like, "Oh, that was fun." That was just like that was work. Um, but this is fun, so I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no, no that that's my goal. And uh, you know, you guys, I think in your with Tim Ferriss, you talked about like why do you do what you do? Like I do this m- much more for passion of talking to people and learning interesting things. Like I have no monetary in the game. Like I, it just, I, I was financially independent a long time ago, pretty much left medicine. The, the, you know, that has nothing for me to me. It's more the excitement of a a cool and interesting conversation. And so to me, that drives me to keep doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously if you're still a practicing doctor, but you do take sponsors, right? I do.
1: Yeah. I mean, so if people, I don't like actively searching, I have a, you know, so it's the, it's the long haul to make money on sponsors. You know this, right? I mean, you need a lot a lot a lot of downloads to start making anything even close to worthwhile from sponsors um if that's the way you're going to do it so to me i'm kind of like yeah if i can pay for the costs of the podcast i'm fairly happy um or a niche audience i talked to someone who has yeah. a really niche audience yeah. and then it's... you do masterminds or facebook groups or you know you you can you can you can monetize obviously in lots of other ways that make more sense than actually through through your advertisers yeah. Although she just sells ads. She sells ads at the same
0: price I do. And she has like a yeah. thousand downloads an episode.
1: Yeah. If you have a really engaged audience that are buyers, right? Like like yeah. you said, if you're really niche and the the company knows, hey, these people listen and are, are high, high value purchasers. Yeah, for sure. Like so this, this podcast on a good day gets between three and four thousand downloads per episode, like at whatever 30 or 90 days. Um yeah. But I've also, you know, I struggle and I'm sure, you know, I've come to the conclusion. I don't know how much you agree or don't agree with this. Like there's two different things, right? There's having a popular podcast and having a really well-made podcast, like uh, engaging. I feel like I can control a lot more how well I make it. I think I found that I'm not willing to put the time and energy into the things that could make it really popular or talents even. Like that's just not my wheelhouse. Um, my wheelhouse is how can I have a really great conversation and dig into who someone is?
0: Yeah. I, I need to get better at that part. Um, And I feel like the things that I've done to grow are not like growth hacks as much as like using, like my talent has always been, like finding ways to get in front of the right yeah. people at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Like and so that I mean, helps grow the show. You are on right Tim
1: Ferriss, right? So that's going to help grow you, et cetera. But I will tell you in my, so I, I believe what you were saying is you're working on kind of the great conversation thing. Yeah. You can develop that for sure. Yeah. Like you, that, that will, first of all, I've, I've listened to you and I've, the ones I've listened to, I thought were quite engaging anyway, but you will hone your skill over the next 50 to 100 episodes to a point where you feel very good about that, I suspect.
0: Yep. And hopefully need to do, you know, spend less time preparing, you know, some of the big guests I've had, I I was preparing for Carrie Walsh Jennings, the Mm -hmm. volleyball player. Mm -hmm. And then she had to reschedule and we still haven't (laughs) scheduled, but I probably spent 12 hours prepping for that interview, uh, which is a lot of time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You'll probably, yeah, my guess is you'll just get faster or, or you'll hire. I mean, You'll hire people to do some of the re the basic research. Although yeah. that's always hard because you know what you're looking for, and that it's always hard I to know. find someone who knows how to do that. Like you know, Joe, Joe Salsihai. I yeah. mean, he's got he a loves pretty, you. Yeah, he <laughs> we're very similar creatively. Like we have kind of similar creative inklings. Um, you know, he's got a team behind him. Um, I still think he's one of the busy hardest working guys out there because he's just driven. Yeah. Um, but he's got a team of people that at least help put things together. He's a fantastic interviewer too. Like, yeah. and I don't know where he gets the time. Cause he just seems to know everything about people. And I'm yeah. like, like I've yeah. done interviews for him. And so I know that I've done the research and he hasn't. And we talk about the interview and he starts bringing stuff up from their books or their stuff. And I'm like, how do you know that?
0: <laughs> yeah. When we did the, uh, We did that like prep episode for the Plutus Awards. And I was like, how do you know what every single person who's up for an award, like you know about their blog, their personnel? I'm like, gosh,
1: he's he's definitely in the know. He remembers a lot of it. He's just because of the number of episodes he does. So he just knows a lot of people in personal finance. But he knows a lot. I mean, he's just one of those guys who's just really interested. So he knows about public figures. He knows about sports people. He knows about just the zeitgeist, uh, which I never had. Like, I think you want him on
0: your trivia team for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure.